0: Time for swordplay. Alex, billionaire Israeli-American philanthropist Miriam Adelson says that she's praying for the day when the book of Trump will be added to the Bible. Are you going to—are you waiting on this uh,
1: inspired addition to the scriptures, Alex? Absolutely, Nick. I expect the book of Trump to be placed right after the Chronicles of Swordplay in the New New Testament. (laughs) Why do you think I work so hard on this podcast? I think I read somewhere that they
0: uh, need to put more fire into that book, or was it vice versa? (laughs) Anyway. Well, Nick, what do we got today? (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts.
1: I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. That's right. Let that be a reminder to the audience. Go back and read 1 Thessalonians. Listen to the podcast for chapter 1 and 2, and come back for chapter 3. We like to dig into the questions based on the verses in that chapter. So, if you're not familiar with the chapter, or you don't have your Bible open before you, it'll be harder to follow along. So go ahead, crack open the Bible, let's study together. Nick, looks like right off the bat here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we have some information given by the Apostle Paul as to uh, when and where he was that... uh, set the occasion and purpose for this letter. So, Nick, why don't you talk to us for a second. Who was left behind at Athens, and when was this?
0: Well, uh, yeah, Paul says we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Um, That's verse 1 there. And it could be Paul only. Um, This could be what's called an epistolary plural, However, we usually typically indicates a plurality that there were others with Paul. And so some suggest Silas is with Paul. And then of course, Timothy is sent to Thessalonica. Uh, As to the when, Acts doesn't give us very much help here. Though from chapter 17, we know that Paul was in Athens, though the details are exclusive to the Mars Hill speech Uh, A reconstruction of this might be something akin to what you read in the Bible knowledge commentary where Paul is in Athens and then sends word to Berea for Timothy and Silas to join him as soon as possible. They do. They all have a mutual concern for the Thessalonian church. And so Paul and Silas dispatch Timothy uh, to Thessalonica. Maybe Silas goes down to Philippi. And then they all reconvene in Corinth, and that's bring that would bring us to Acts 18. But uh, that's one reconstruction. Uh, is there another way of looking at this, Alex?
1: Yeah, so that reconstruction I somewhat disagree with. So, um, number one, Acts 17 and 18 doesn't mention anything about Timothy and Silas. Uh, being with Paul in Athens. So that's the first assumption you have to make in that Reconstruction. Um, And second of all, um, second thing is that 1 Thessalonians 3 here says that Timothy was sent, but uh, Acts 18 has both Timothy and Silas coming back down from Macedonia to meet Paul at Corinth. So in your Reconstruction, um, since Philippi and Thessalonica are both in Macedonia, that's why you have the meeting, Paul in Corinth after he sent them out from Athens. So that's that's the reconstruction. I'm not exactly on. I mean, it's possible. I'm not exactly on the same page as that. So here's here's what I think. I think actually Acts 20 provides uh, a better reference for this because if you think about it, in Acts chapter 17 and 18, uh, Luke does concern himself with where Paul, Saul and where Silas and Timothy are at. The given, at the given moment. And so it's like you see him at Berea, and the next thing you know, you see him at Corinth. And Paul goes through Athens in between. So Acts 20, verses 1 through 5, may be a better option for when Paul was in Athens and could have sent Timothy to Thessalonica. So according to Acts twenty one through 5, Paul stays in Greece for three months. And since Athens is in Greece, perhaps Paul, along with other disciples like Silas, sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonians at that time and that would place Paul sending Timothy to them and thus writing this letter upon Timothy's return towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey, which would be AD 56 to 57. Any thoughts on that, Nick? That's a, I think that's a later date than is usually... Or am I misremembering that? I may be misremembering No, that. no, you're right. If you take the uh, Reconstruction view that you just gave then that puts the date earlier, like 52, uh, 51, 52. Uh, But if you take Acts 20 as the time and occasion, then it pushes it back from the second missionary journey to the third missionary journey, which adds another four or five years to to the date of when Paul wrote this. I see. So depending on which occasion you take... Then, for when Paul is in Athens, because we've got two occasions there where Paul's in Athens, once in Acts 18, or 17, and then once in Acts 20, then which occasion you pick determines the timing of the letter, primarily. So, interesting stuff. Yeah. Moving on. A couple different ways of looking at that. (laughs) That's right. All right, verses 3 and 4. Paul says that uh, there were these afflictions, and that they were destined to... For affliction. Nick, speak to us for a minute. Which afflictions does Paul refer to? I mean, it seems like he always has affliction. And how are they exactly destined for affliction?
0: Uh, So, the way I'm reading this is this is uh, non Christian opposition to the gospel, which he had a lot of that just about everywhere he went. Uh, There were those who opposed the gospel, uh, who were hostile to Christianity. And as for that word destined there at the end of verse 3, they, we are destined for this, um, the word itself speaks more to uh, inevitability, just the inevitability of the affliction, rather than, say, predestination or predetermination. Um, in other words, it's inevitable that Christians suffer in this world because the world hates them. And of course the world hates Christians, the disciples of Jesus, because it first hated him, as we read over in the Gospel of John, in that upper
1: room discourse. So
0: uh that's that's my take. What say you
1: Yeah, it's true that uh Christianity in general brings about affliction and suffering, right? The the world system, the thinking of the world and the well, the dark forces of the world, if you will. They are set against Christ and his ways. And so I would say, on the other hand, though, Paul does have a specific set of afflictions in mind here that the Thessalonians are aware of and that he felt compelled to send Timothy to encourage them and to update them on the situation. So maybe he's referring to everything that's happened since the last time he saw them, which was either back in Acts 17 or as he passed through Macedonia after the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and 20. If you remember during that riot, uh, Aristarchus was with Paul and he got dragged out into the middle of the theater, a theater of 25,000, by the way, where you have a uh, chaotic crowd like hypnotically shouting, great as Artemis of Ephesia for a few hours. (laughs) Hmm. He's dragged out front and center of all that. And uh, according to the book of Acts, Aristarchus is from Thessalonica So maybe based off of that event, maybe that shook them up. You know, Aristarchus, one of their own, was caught in the middle of that. Uh, But if I am right about Acts 20, being the time when Paul sends Timothy, it would seem that he had just been in Thessalonica then for the second time because it says after the riot, he went from Ephesus uh, to Athens and he passed through all the districts of Macedonia. So did he, for the sake of speed, like, go through those districts, but not stop to see the congregations along the way like Thessalonica? Or did he stop and that was the second time he got to see them before he lands at Athens? So, uh, what would have happened that Paul would feel compelled to send Timothy to go check up on them? I cannot say with confidence what that would be. So, that complicates things with pinpointing when Paul sent Timothy and thus wrote the letter. But as far as their destination for affliction. Paul seems to have a foreboding awareness through the Holy Spirit, no less, according to Acts 20, verses 22 through 23, that in every city bonds and afflictions await him. That's what he says. And he's not sure what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem because that's where he wants to go next after Athens. He wants to go to Jerusalem. This is on the third missionary journey. And according to Acts 21 13, He's willing to die in Jerusalem. He doesn't know if he will, but it means that he knows it's a real possibility. So that might be the foreboding that they know about and that he knows about and that he's engaging in this journey to undergo, and maybe they're worried about him. I don't know. Something like that. What do you think, Nick?
0: So non-Christian opposition it is.
1: (laughs) 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 All right. Well, verse 5 Nick, why would Paul's suffering be a temptation or shake the Thessalonians' faith?
0: Well, as we know, uh, he mentions the tempter here, and the tempter—that's usually language for the devil, for Satan—and that's that's what Satan does, and his spiritual forces is they they seek to tempt people, to lure people away from uh, from faith in Christ, and so. It's as if Satan is tempting these Christians to abandon their faith, perhaps something akin to, hey, look look how much easier life would be if you just stopped confessing Christ. And since they're going through such intense affliction here, it's only going to get worse based on Second Thessalonians. Things really get amped up there, it seems. And so, uh, yeah, just... That, that could be the temptation. That could be one way of reading this. What say you?
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the tempter could say similar things to us that he may have been saying to them. Just in the back of their head, a little voice that keeps saying, if God really loved you and what you believed was true, then why would someone as dedicated as Paul have to suffer so much? Why do you continue to suffer for no reason? You may even be against God. I mean, think about it. These guys, they're just some fanatic religion. This cult coming out of Judaism. Hiss, hiss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, talk to us more about the tempter, though. Does the tempter still tempt people today? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, so I just want to build uh, upon and, and parse just a little bit further Um, some of the comments that I made from the previous episode, uh, especially regarding chapter 2, verse 18. Satan is a finite entity. That means he is not omnipresent. He cannot be all places at once. However, he does have an army of darkness that is vast. He took in his rebellion a third of the innumerable host of heaven and so what is a third of what you can't count right that's that's a lot and so he has a lot he has many in his ranks these are fallen angels they comprise the spiritual forces of darkness against which we are at war i say all that to say this i believe satan has bigger fish to fry than little old me i don't think that satan personally tempts me, I think he leaves that work to one of his minions, perhaps a a power or a ruler or an authority or a dominion. Those are various, it seems, ranks that we get from elsewhere in Paul's writing. Uh, It could be perhaps that there's more than just one of those bad guys that are bearing down on me or on any one of us. These are powerful spiritual entities and they seek to influence, they seek to tempt us for evil. It's true, don't get me wrong, that uh, we are led astray by our own ungodly desires. Those get us in trouble from time to time. We have uh, also, in addition to this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are things in the world that also factors in here. So. uh, Those You need to keep those in mind. But also we can't overlook these powerful spiritual beings. They will use everything in their malevolent arsenal in order to entice a person to sin. Now, they cannot force us to sin when we give in to temptation. That's when we sin. But since it is a battle for the mind, I'm persuaded that these spiritual forces of darkness... They will use suggestion. They will use ideas. They will use thoughts. The acronym for that is SIT, and that's because, of course, their goal is to sit on the heart of our on the throne of our hearts. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that I think they'll they'll utilize that in the battle for the mind in order to get us to engage in all kinds of ungodly behavior if they can. Uh, so, does the tempter still tempt today? You bet. You bet. And I think it's a bit more subtle than. You know, well, you know, the devil's really on me today. Well, okay. That may just be shorthand for any spiritual forces of darkness. Are, they're against us, and and they are they they tempt us. It's real spiritual warfare. Uh, what do you think, Alex?
1: Yeah, Nick, I think that's well said. Um, and I'll only add that it seems that there is a point in which God gives you over to the darkness and to a depraved mind. I like to picture anyone's walk as a gradient, you know, the more you walk in darkness as a settled practice, that is, then the less likely, but not impossible, it will be for you to turn around and walk in the light. And on the other side of the same equation, the more you walk in the light as a settled practice, you know, no one's perfect, then the less likely, but not impossible, it will be for you to turn back to darkness as a settled practice. But we do have to leave some room there for the influence that both God and Satan and his minions can exert on someone, as you were saying, through suggestion, ideas, and thoughts. Otherwise, what else can it possibly mean that God gives you over? There has to be some substance to that. Hmm. I'm actually reminded of a podcast you did in your... Life or live from the pulpit, right? Yeah, yeah. Reaching and, back into the archives, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's super big archives. There we go. And uh, those are still up and available for anybody live from the pulpit, Nick Perez. Now, this uh, SIT acronym, suggestion, ideas, thoughts, uh, that seems to fall under temptation, but there you outlined four more areas of demonic influence, if you will. There was oppression, and then there was. Obsession, uh, Infiltration, or not infiltration, infestation, Mm -hmm. and possession. And you said at the time you could get behind the first four, temptation, uh, like we talked about here, oppression, which would be uh, things like sickness and uh, stuff like that, ailments. um, uh, Obsession, you know, getting your Mind fixated and addicted to uh, dark things. And then infestation, which is like you have a space that is just infested with dark uh, power. And then the last one, possession, you said you couldn't quite get on board with, but, you know, full-on demonic possession. And so I was just curious, are you still at that point? First four, but probably not the fifth one? Right now... Early
0: July twenty nineteen? Yeah, I think so. Gotcha. I was just
1: curious. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there's more definitely more going on here. So if you uh, let that be the teaser, if you want to hear more of that conversation, go back to Live From the Pulpit. LiveFromThePulpit.com. Yeah. That's right. Well, Nick, in verse six, uh, we have Paul's mention about the report concerning the good news of their faith and love. Uh, what what was their faith and love, the Thessalonians, Nick? I see that just as their Christian walk,
0: generally speaking.
1: I think that's probably right. Uh, it seems to be a throwback to the very first opening of the letter, chapter 1, verse 3, where their faith was a work of faith and their love was a labor of love. And so whatever specifics or generalities Paul has in mind, I just wanted to add that it certainly involved concrete things that they were doing. Right. They weren't mental exercises, Uh, especially when it came to spreading the gospel and taking care of each other, as we saw in chapter 1, that they were doing. And we'll see in chapter 4 that they should continue doing. Well, Nick, verse 7, there's an interesting phrase. Paul says, uh, because of this, in all of their distress, they are comforted by the Thessalonians' faith. And then in verse 8, it says, for now we really live, if... You stand firm in the Lord. What does that mean? Now we really live. Uh, what what is Paul trying to communicate?
0: Well, the the contrast here, I think, would be life as opposed to death, and that death would be something from the dread that they felt that the Thessalonians had abandoned their faith. Uh, it would be as if uh, if the Thessalonians abandoned their faith, it would be as if they had died. Something like that, perhaps. Uh, but now. Since the Thessalonians are standing fast, we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but life's worth living. Life's worth living because the Thessalonians live for him, right? That's That seems to be what's in view here.
1: Uh, what do you think? The Thessalonians live for, for him as in Jesus, right? Right, capital okay. H. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> 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 well, um, another angle to this, I think also, though, seems to point back to Paul's labor whether or not that was being in vain um and so uh, in chapter two we saw that it was the thessalonians whom paul considered to be his hope his joy his crown of exaltation. and we questioned well was it not those sound like things that that's to do what jesus is jesus is my hope joy and crown but paul says yes but the thessalonians are my hope joy and crown well how does that work well i don't think paul labors for the sake of labor I think he hopes to be rewarded for his labor in the resurrection. Uh, Hope is for the future. It's not for the present. Uh, He presently has Christ Jesus, uh, but he hopes to labor for Christ and to be rewarded for that. Paul considers the faith of those he teaches to be the deciding factor then of whether he worked in vain or not. And then that in turn informs him of how he is living his life. For now we really live. In other words what we've done w- with our time has been given meaning because of their continued faithfulness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Well, what does it mean, then, Nick, to stand fast in the Lord? To well, state? obvious. Yeah.
0: yeah. O- obviously, it means, um, well, they had AM and PM worship services. They uh-huh. offered the Lord separate both services. They uh-huh. taught from the King James Version only. They uh-huh. didn't support institutions from the church budget Um uh-huh. Oh wait a minute! Uh, yeah those are those are things people today consider <laughs> as standing fast in the Lord or or standing for truth. Um,
1: Die heretic!
0: Yeah, yeah. In reality and contextually, what what uh, Paul is talking about here, it seems to be they they were standing fast in the Lord because they were remaining steadfast uh, under intense opposition to the cause of Christ. Um, that is what. They, they were That is, they were standing firm in the faith. Um, and I think that's typical in the New Testament, what, what it means to stand firm, stand fast in the faith, in the Lord, is to remain faithful to
1: Jesus under intense opposition. Uh, what do you think? I think that's right, Nick. And they didn't let discouraging or fearful news slow down their efforts to reach people with the gospel or their capacity and desire to love one another or to strive to live a quiet life. We'll cover that more in chapter four. And so let that be a reminder to all of our brethren doomsdayers, right? Hmm. And all of our brethren connoisseurs of geopolitical headlines. Hmm. Um, If you're letting discouraging or fearful news get in the way or slow down your efforts to reach people with the gospel, Uh, the way you talk to and treat one another in love, or your desire to strive to live a quiet life, a quiet life. (laughs) Uh, Let that be a reminder that we have an example here in the Thessalonians that is worth following. Well, Nick, in chapter 10, Paul says he wishes he could see them face to face. He wants to complete what's lacking in their faith. That brings up a good question. For all these compliments that Paul throws at the Thessalonians, what would be lacking then? in the Thessalonians' faith.
0: Yeah, the, the end of verse 10 there, supply what is lacking in your faith. Um, in a word, I, I think it's instruction, uh, specifically about the second coming of Christ. Um, you can see chapter 4, verses 13 and following, where Paul has an extended discussion there about that. Uh, they were standing firm in their faith, standing firm in the Lord, but they were still confused about certain beliefs, and so since Paul couldn't be there in person, he wrote this epistle. So these these are still uh, new converts, still babes in Christ, and they are in need of growth through instruction
1: in God's Word. What do you think? I think that's a pretty good guess, uh, especially with how frequent Paul mention, mentions the, the coming of Christ. Um, I'm not sure if I agree that they were still babes in Christ. They might have been. It seems like Paul had given the faith, you know, the totality of teachings from the apostles to all congregations that he had contact with. But the epistles seem to be instruction regarding what the faith has to do with their current problems. Hmm. They're all occasion-based. So Paul reminds them of things they already know, but he applies them in a way that speaks to their circumstances. So what was lacking in their faith may have been more hermeneutical, that is, application of the faith, and not necessarily exegesis, that is, interpretation or understanding of the faith. Any thoughts on that?
0: No, I think that's uh, i think that's fair.
1: Okay, all right. <laughs> huh. Well, what else do we have? Verse eleven. Ah, um, oh, yes. Yeah, so he prays to see them again. Right. Nick, did God answer Paul's prayer? Did he get to see them again? And if he did, how and when? <laughs> it's, I like to think of it like those old ghost, ghost stories, right? No one
0: knows. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so. Let me just work here for a second. Think about this. Since I'm working from an Acts 17 framework, assuming that the reconstruction that I shared earlier is right. Sure. He writes that epistle, and then sometime after his uh, Corinthian ministry, his Ephesian ministry, 18, 19, 20 of Acts, he goes to Greece. And assuming you're right that since Athens is in Greece, he goes to Athens as part of the Grecian trip there then yeah it 's possible in that in that uh, way of viewing it uh, from an early dating of the book yeah he he could have then um, another uh, view of this is uh, some have reconstructed paul 's fourth missionary journey right that that long lost fourth missionary journey after his Roman imprisonment. The general consensus, I think, is he he does get released from that first one. He he will eventually be martyred under a mm-hmm. second Roman imprisonment. But um, there's strong evidence to support he gets released. He goes on and he does go to the outer edges of the Roman Empire, Spain, right? right. Um, and then in a roundabout way, he comes back through like Crete, Nicopolis, and then even Thessalonica. Uh, and so I think the likelihood is that yes, he he does, even though it may have been many years later, I think he does visit these Christians again. What do you think?
1: Well, okay, I think yes, and here's, here's some potential for when this could have happened. Paul, he visits Thessalonica potentially three times in the book of Acts, first in Acts 17 on his second missionary journey. Second, potentially, on his journey when he goes through all the districts of Macedonia as he traveled from Ephesus to Greece, according to Acts chapter 20. And then, that's verses 1 and 2. And then third, potentially, on his way from Athens back to Jerusalem. Because if you remember, he originally wanted to go from Greece to Syria by way of ship. Um, But this... uh, planning of opposition from the Jews came to his attention so he didn't go that way that was going to be too dangerous so he decided to backtrack through Macedonia again and Mm -hmm. so it's possible that on his backtracking that could have potentially been his third visit to Thessalonica now if I'm right about Acts chapter 20 being the time and occasion for Paul to write this letter then Paul's prayer is answered He gets to see them again that third time, potentially, as he backtracks through Macedonia. But notice how the prayer would have been answered then, if that's right. It would have been answered through persecution. He wouldn't have gone that way had the Jews not persecuted him in Greece at that time. So isn't it interesting how God may grant what we want but not through the means we would have chosen were it left up to us. (laughs) Hmm. So let that be a lesson for us today. When we encounter negative circumstances, we may be encountering the means by which God will use to answer our prayers. And whether we see the opportunities before us as such will depend upon our faith. Now, to be clear, crystal clear, God does not need nor does he plan on using evil or Satan or his minions to accomplish his purposes. But think of it as if God is like a jujitsu master. (laughs) He can take the momentum created by the enemy and turn it around to use it against them. That's how strong and smart our God is. He's the most high God. Now, speaking about prayer and answers to prayer, uh, Nick, is it still okay to, hmm, let's say, pray to Jesus as opposed to just the Father?
0: <laughs> yeah, this this comes up here in verse 11. Uh, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct your way. Um, and etc. Verses 11-13 uh, through 13 are, without question, a prayer that Paul has embedded right here in the middle of this epistle. And that Paul prays to Jesus is evident. That's the Lord Jesus there. He names him. And so, uh, to neglect or to refuse to pray to Jesus, I believe, is to miss out on a powerful aspect of prayer. As we sing from time to time, now let us have a little talk with Jesus, right? That's, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, we, we need to take advantage
1: of uh, praying to our Lord and Savior. Uh, what do you think? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Pray to God the Father, yes. Pray to God the Son, yes. Why are we arguing over this? <laughs> what exactly is at stake here?
0: <laughs> well, I'm, you know what's at stake, right? I mean, it's um, precision obedience, I think is the phrase for it. Aha. Uh-huh. We uh, we pray to the Father through Jesus, and so we don't directly address Jesus, which I think is... Um, uh, a misapplication and a terrible way of parsing um, mm.
1: scripture, but that's for our brethren who view things that way. That's what's uh, at stake for them. Yeah, uh, it's too bad Stephen didn't know that as he was being stoned to death.
0: I know. Well, well you know, if you're being stoned so to death and hell, the heavens open up and right? you see
1: Jesus, then you can pray to
0: him. That's. Oh, I yeah, see. I see. Yeah, yeah. well. That's unfortunate it's out there, but I I mean, I like to address it as often as we can, and here's another opportunity to do it. It's okay. Sophistry at its
1: finest, I see. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, verse 12, Nick, this is an important one. How does the Lord cause one, then, according to the prayer, to Mm -hmm. increase in love? I mean, if the Lord is making it happen, does that violate our free will? Don't we have free will, Nick? yes we we do have free will it is not an illusion or anything
0: like that um and so yeah we here's here's some tension here right verse 12 may the lord make you increase and abound in love and i I see it this way it's a synergistic thing i think that's the big word for it that is we as we cooperate with christ in fulfilling his commands to love one another or to love our neighbor as ourself um as we do that, he increases our capacity to love all the more, and we cannot exceed too much in love. We can't go beyond. There's there's no limit to the amount that that uh, we are called to love. It reminds me of uh, something that Jesus says in John 15 verse 4. He says, "Abide in me, and I in you." But well, which is right. it? Is it that we abide in Him, or that He abides in us? Yes, yes, I think. Right. Well are we commanded to love or does God incre- does does the Lord make us increase and abound in love? Well, yes. Right. Yeah, I think right. I think both are are essential here.
1: What do you think? Absolutely. I think that's right. We freely we freely choose to open ourselves to God's word, to his will in our life, to his influence, and by doing so, we begin to create new thought patterns a new way of thinking. I believe Paul called this a transformation by the renewing of one's mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And uh, the results of such renewing, by God's design, of course, is that increased capacity for love that you, you spoke of. The Lord causes us to move in such ways by capitalizing on our choice to want to be moved even if that desire is small, like a mustard seed, or even if we're like uh, Saul, always kicking against the goats. If there is something there in which you want to be in the will of God, then God takes that, he capitalizes on it, however big it is, and he uses it wherever you're at to get you to the next step, to cause you to abound and to grow. And that's that cooperative synergistic um, Idea that you spoke of. And I think it goes both ways. I think Satan, his minions, they can also capitalize on your willingness and desire to do evil. Hmm. And so it goes both ways. Cause us to increase and abound in hatred. Yes, exactly. Hmm. But if we increase and abound more and more in love for one another, the end of the prayer says that it will establish our hearts blameless. In holiness, That's before right. God, our Father, at the coming of Jesus Christ, with his saints, first off, Nick th- that last verse it 's a doozy verse thirteen. This is the yeah. end of the chapter there 's a lot here. first, how does loving one another make us blameless and holy? Is this justification by works? Is my labor of love? is that me working for my justification
0: hm i don 't not necessarily, although. There is this thread in the Bible about how we will be judged according to our works. It's a rather intriguing concept that, you know, we have to explore some other time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Another podcast uh, for another time. (laughs) Sure, that's right. Here, though, the concept seems to be that – uh, we it, 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 it's spelled out explicitly elsewhere, and that is fulfilling the law is bound up in loving others. Um, there are a few places that uh, this idea comes up. Uh, for example, Galatians 5 and verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, also in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, Oh, no one, anything except to love each other. For the love, who, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then, of course, you have the words of Jesus in the Gospel Matthew chapter 22 through 22, Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40, uh, there where he he lines outlines um, the greatest command, which is uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is the second and like it. Uh, So, uh, someone has said that loveless Christianity is an oxymoron. I actually want to strengthen that while I say amen to it. I'll strengthen it by saying it's actually heresy. Hmm. If we would truly be holy unto the Lord, we must traverse the holy pathway of love for others. Uh, What do you
1: think, Alex? Well, before I go on my big long spiel, I'll I'll, uh, amen what you said loveless Christianity is, is heresy. Um, I want to let you know that as I start to talk here, my goal is to unpack holiness, what holiness means, in a couple different ways. So let's get into it. Just to throw another wrench into the theological cogs, I want us to be mindful of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We already covered 2 Thessalonians, but chapter 2, verse 13 says, God has chosen you From the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. So according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, salvation is through both sanctification and faith. Now how does that relate to 1 Thessalonians 3.13, the verse at hand? Um, Okay, increasing in love establishes our hearts without blame. That's what it says. But the next phrase is in holiness before our God and Father. I would like to suggest that the phrase in holiness should be read as a place or a location as opposed to the way or the means by which our hearts are established. The Greek here for holiness is hagiosune and that's important because it, that actually is only used two other times in the New Testament. Romans 1, 4 and 2 Corinthians 7.1. If you go back and read those verses and together with this one, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, instead of the word holiness, try to think the sanctuary or sacred space. In other words, the presence of God and his dwelling place. This way of thinking about holiness, that is when it's hagiosune in the Greek, it can make a lot of sense, and it works in the Septuagint as well. I went back and checked. Now, we have to think about that alongside these other words, justification and sanctification. So justification is by grace through faith in the truth. That's reaffirmed in that Second Thessalonians verse, 2.13. That's reaffirmed in Ephesians 2. But sanctification is by the work of the Spirit as we live faithfully. That's the other half of 2 Thessalonians 2.13. So the whole equation, justification by grace through faith in the truth and Sanctification by the work of the Spirit, as we live faithfully, that whole equation becomes covered by the umbrella of what we can then call our salvation. So, salvation is the umbrella that covers both justification by faith and sanctification by uh, work of the Spirit and our faithful living. So, loving one another establishes our hearts blameless, because that's the sanctification. Process That's part of the sanctification process. And we'll say more about sanctification in chapter 4 because that's going to pop up three times back to back. Hmm. But the sanctification process prepares us to be in holiness. In other words, sacred space before God at the coming of Jesus Christ. So I'll say that again because that's really important for the summary here. Verse 13. When we love and abound in love for one another, that is part of our sanctification process. That process has a goal in mind, and it's to prepare us for being in the sanctuary, sacred space of God, the Father. Especially at the end, when he comes with Jesus Christ. And who does Jesus come with? It says he comes with his saints, which literally means the holy ones. And we'll talk about that next, but... All of this reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 which says pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord See that's not justification that's sanctification is something you pursue not something you already have and if you don't go through the sanctification you won't see the Lord so that's an important part that's covered by the umbrella of salvation so that's a lot to take. You might have to rewind the podcast and, and listen over like three or four times to see if it sinks in. But that's a lot to process, but it's a different way of thinking about it, especially as we see the word holiness and whether we're talking about a location or a process. Um, Nick, thoughts? <laughs> well, I think that's a, an excellent
0: connection there. And especially uh, that word before our God and Father, because that's, that's presence language. Right. Um, in the old testament uses a lot of uh before the lord or before yahweh something like phrases like that uh, and that's presence language that's to be in the presence so uh, your connection there with the the holiness the the sacred place the sacred space um before our lord yeah i think i think that's right on the money with with being in his presence in in the holy Place, right? right, right, right. So I, I think that's, and especially yeah, the, uh, the, the idea of salvation, the umbrella of salvation, justification uh, through faith in the truth, um, and then sanctification by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and also as we live faithfully. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's a an excellent
1: way to capture all of that discussion. And the trick is, is we think justification is the same thing as salvation, but it's not it's not justification is a part of salvation salvation is made up of both justification and sanctification uh i'll say that again salvation is made up of both justification and sanctification so now that your brains are melted (laughs) (laughs) let's uh get to our last question here chapter 3 verse 13 nick uh when is jesus coming and also who are his saints (laughs) (laughs) When? We don't know. Uh, We don't know
0: when. Um, That he will, without a doubt. Um, But when, um, well, Paul will address this in chapter 5, that he comes like a thief. Paul says, I don't have any reason to write to you guys about the time, because you know that he's coming like a thief in the night, so... Um, Who are the saints? Those are, you addressed it just a moment ago, the holy ones, the Christians, right? Um, Those who are being sanctified, who are working out their salvation and all that. Um, I want to just note here that Paul mentions the coming of Jesus, the, the final coming of Jesus, at the close of every chapter of this epistle. 1, verse 10, 2, verse 19, 3, verse 13, 4, he has the extended discussion from 13 to 18, and then chapter 5, verse 23. I would say that kind of repetition indicates this is a major theme in this epistle. That's right.
1: That that final coming of Jesus. And you know, Nick, I wonder if sometimes we don't see when S. eschatological elements are major themes within a letter because perhaps we in the churches of christ don't have very strong esch- eschatological hooks to hang stuff on hmm. so if we have nothing to hang it on then it just kind of disappears it's like oh i didn't know that every single chapter talks about the return of christ <laughs> yeah first thessalonians uh i think you noted right 110 219 313 413 I mean, that's pretty incredible when you think about it, the resurrection yeah. and the return of Christ at the end of every chapter. Hmm. So I mean, my thoughts, when is he coming? Uh, I agree with you, which is pretty plain in Scripture. We don't know. Uh, and I think that's because it hasn't been decided yet. I do believe, though, based on Second Peter chapter three, you can go back to the archives uh, for that for more discussion. but Second Peter three verses 10 through 12. I believe that it says God is patiently waiting for people to repent and that we can even hasten the coming of the Lord. So when I put those two together, I assume that through our evangelistic efforts, we can hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. So are you tired of living in this dark world? It's just like, well, spread the gospel, make disciples. That's that's the best thing you can do. So who are his saints then? That's the question And I said in the previous answer, it's the Greek word hagios, and it literally means holy ones. And I wish it was kind of translated that way more consistently instead of saints, because we think of saints as in like St. John and St. Peter and St. Mark and St. Luke and all the saints throughout, you know, church history coming from that uh, Catholic viewpoint of uh, the sainthood. Beatification and all that. Right. Now... The reason I wish it was holy once is because I think that term more accurately fits uh, what's going on here and really every time the word is used, both in the Septuagint and in the New Testament in the Greek. So the term quite accurately fits the, a description of all who are fit to occupy holy space, those who are loyal to Yahweh and the Christ Jesus. And you know, since uh, Jesus returns with the trumpeting of angels... And angels—that's uh, in later in chapter four—and then also angels of retribution—that's in Second Thessalonians chapter one. If you want to read that that way, in verses seven and eight, along with as we see in the next chapter, the dead in Christ. Then I think I can safely say that the saints, the holy ones, are both angelic and human. Especially since holy ones is a stock term in the Old Testament for angels all over the place. So I think that it conveys a status. Of those who can occupy sacred space or holy space before God. So the sanctification process increases our capacity to hold this status. In other words, we become sacred space. And the completion of that process is we can stand before God in His presence. Any thoughts there, Nick?
0: The only other thought I had was uh, going back to, to the when, uh, the time element here. Sure. Um, Again, to reiterate, we don't know, right? But I think there has been precedent, which has been established. Um, say, like with Noah's Ark, sure. When the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts was only toward evil, sure. That's when God said, "It's, <laughs> it's time. That's that's enough." And so, um, I am not a. Um, what a uh, post millennialist where i think things will get better and better i think evil people go from bad to worse i think lawlessness leads to more lawlessness um and so i w- unfortunately we should expect to see things get worse that's just seems to be our bent our inclination and that's part of the flesh and i agree that doesn't mean we don't uh, abandon our evangelistic efforts. Um, We see darkness. We need to be people who shed light and be light bearers. But um, uh, yeah, I think there is a a hint at as to the win element when things get so bad that uh, people's uh, their their thoughts and inclinations are only toward evil. I think that's a very strong indication that it's not far off. And you know, Paul said it this way, we're closer
1: now than we've ever been. So, <laughs> Right, right. Well, and as we know from Scripture, the spreading of the gospel and the making of disciples uh, doesn't one way or the other guarantee uh, a better world or a darker, more evil world. Hmm. Um, in fact, you know, um, there are times in the book of Acts when the, the church was living in peace and the gospel spread effectively and the church grew. But there are also times where the Christians were being persecuted, and the gospel still spread, and the word increased, and the church grew. I'm thinking of the underground church in China today, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are scores and scores of people. We don't even we don't even know the numbers. We just know it's a lot in China who are becoming Christians every day. But the hostility against Christianity in China is ramping up. Uh, Missionaries are having a harder time finding visas, whether it's through vocation uh, or otherwise, to be in the country because China is cracking down harder on foreigners and the presence of foreigners in their country. Uh, They're cracking down on all other religions. They're sending uh, Muslims, especially on the uh, western border of China uh, that borders with um, Central Asia, they're they're sending Muslims there to uh, something uh, almost akin to a concentration camp where they are uh de what they call de brainwashed, right? Where they have to come out effectively um obedient slaves to the state and no longer um uh claiming to be, you know, faithful Muslims or anything like that and so you have this washing out of culture and religion from China to be conformed to uh, this singular uh, pattern of thinking that is submissive to the government and that's I mean that's, (laughs) that's crazy but that's what's going on in the midst of a massively growing underground church in China so increased discipleship increased Christianity increased spreading of the gospel does not mean better world doesn't mean post millennialism not at all it, it could be in some areas but you can't guarantee that one way or the other which is why i don't really fully agree with post-millennialism or premillennialism. millennialism it just hmm. just doesn't fit what we see right so i think that brings us to uh, our favorite portion of our podcast the one minute sermon <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's
0: right um is it me do i go first this time
1: Uh, well, let's see, you know, I think, I think that's right. I think you go first this time and, and I go, I go second. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. All right. So, Nick, today, your song is, hold on, let me see if I remember. (laughs) I'm trying. I thought I knew the, the band name. Oh yes, yes, okay, okay. Nick, today, speaking of end times and when Jesus is coming back, uh, I would like you to preach a one minute sermon on the song The Final Countdown by the band Europe. The final countdown. (laughs) Go, one wait, 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 hold on, my timer out. Hold on. One on the clock. Timer, one minute, final countdown by Europe. Go.
0: I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. In it's in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 20. Uh, concerning the day and hour, we don't know. We've been talking about how we don't know. We don't know the exact time, the final countdown as to when exactly Jesus will come back. But we do know that, as Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And since we are living under the final countdown, as it were, we don't know when he's going to come back, but what kind of people should we be? Well, it's the kind of people we've been talking about, the kind of people who are holy who are set apart unto the Lord for His uh, holy and good purposes? Uh, people who abound in good works, people who abound and increase in love. Uh, that way, one day when we stand before Him, we can be blameless in holiness at His coming.
1: Very good, sir. Wow! <laughs> right, right on time. Very fitting. That's right. is that the is that the midi edition right there yeah i threw a little trumpet in there and then some electric guitar at the end okay you'd see my air guitar
0: we're going back 20 years for this one 1999, the 19th film of this movie franchise came out. It was oh. uh, starring Pierce Brosnan. His third appearance is James Bond. Oh. The title of the movie is also the title of this song that was uh, sang by the band Garbage, the rock band Garbage. <laughs> The world is not enough. That's your song, song title, The World Is Not Enough, by the American rock band Garbage <laughs> title, title song for uh, Pierce Brosnan's third turn as James Bond in the aptly named movie The World Is Not Enough as well. All right. One minute on the clock,
1: The World Is Not Enough, and go. You're going to have to flip through the Gospels to find the specific passage, but Jesus tells a parable about a man who stored up in his barns so much that he said, look, I can live the rest of my life in ease and pleasure. And then he was told by God, you fool, tonight your very life will be demanded of you. And so who will enjoy what you've stored up? For what purpose have you used this time to not... Get what you worked for. This idea going back to discipleship and to one's commitment to Christ, I mean, what will a man give in exchange for a soul? What price will he accept for payment for a soul? What kind of deal are you willing to make with the devil? Let's say you get the whole world and not forfeit your soul. What point is there in that? Hmm. And so, yes, yeah, so the world is not enough, even if you were to be given the whole world, it's not enough. Uh, to be worth your soul. The only thing that can keep your soul safe for the world to come is faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Time. Boom. All right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, that's Luke 12, verses 15 and following. I actually
1: preached that text on Sunday. (laughs) That's what I was going to guess, was Luke 12, um, 15 and following. No, I didn't know that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You really just preached that?
0: yeah well i mean it was it was part of a larger series on spiritual disciplines the discipline of simplicity, which is connected to the the parable there ends with um this is what it's like for a person who is um, uh not who is uh not rich toward god something like that sure and so um Our life does not consist in our possessions.
1: And in the abundance of one's... A man's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. That's right. Very good. Well, another one for the uh, record books. I call that a win. Good job, Nick. Well done.
0: (laughs) We've referenced a lot of our previous episodes in today's podcast. You can find those archived uh, either on the uh cast.rocks website um what is it called <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's uh swordplay.cast.rocks there. swordplay.cast.rocks that's what i was thinking um but also they're in the uh, google play music store they're also in the itunes store you can go Using your particular device and track those down. Just search Swordplay in those respective places, and you can download all those episodes, take them with you wherever you go, and uh, get the leave a review, get the word out about um, our
1: podcasts, spread the word on social media as well. All right, and if you have any questions, email us at SwordplayPodcast at gmail dot com. Email us at SwordplayPodcast at gmail dot com. Also uh nick's cell phone number is nine five five (laughs) five 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 five, and so you can call him personally he'll be your preacher in your pocket that's (laughs) kl5 well we do thank you for turning tuning into another episode of sword play we'll see you next week for first thessalonians chapter four thanks for tuning in